You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. So that's, that's a little bit about the publication of the, of the book. And as far as I know, it was meant for internal use, obviously. There would be very few people who are interested in it um, outside of the church. And I'm sure, I, I don't think that we can control, you know, who had the book and who didn't have the book. And there was certainly no proviso or anything written in the front that said, do not share this with, with anyone. Um, so that takes us to my friend, Napoleon. Because he has a lot to do with this period, obviously. <laughs> um, and when Dr. Robert Pallaprat, we they call him a podiatrist, and of course the cranky old marquise, you know, says, "Ah, oh, he's a foot doctor." Wow. Again, context. For any of you who know about European history, the royal houses of Europe always maintained a retinue and a household of dignitaries. And for those of you who come from Commonwealth countries, you might be aware of certain titles that work for Her Majesty, which they don't really, they're not the royal sweeper of the broom closet, but that allows them a place at court so they can socialize and they get invitations to the cocktail parties. Well, in the administration of Emperor of the Emperor, Napoleon, um, it's very probable that being the court podiatrist was something that he'd be called upon should he have uh, you know, a hangnail, but it really was an excuse to get into the cocktail parties. So it, it allowed him to um, mingle with very important people um, in, in court. And I think he was very comfortable with that, even though he was you know, fairly middle class person. Educated, priest, doctor, but not not noble, not not a noble birth. But neither was Napoleon. So this was a new kind of constitutional um, monarchy that Napoleon was envisioning, not just for France, but as you know, for the rest of Europe, and possibly more than that. I mean, he was in Egypt. He was interested in the codification of, well, the code, Napoleon, which is used as the basis, well, it's partially Roman law, but it's partially Napoleon's doing, the introduction of these laws in places like Germany and other parts of Europe was a revolutionary act in itself in that it opened up freedom of discussion, dissent, freedom of religion, et cetera, et cetera. Because Napoleon was, although a cultural Catholic, certainly not beholden to the Pope, as we all know. Um, you might remember uh, the fate. The this isn't the exact picture, because this is actually a collage that I had. But um, the picture of Napoleon with the crown, he's crowning Josephine. Um, but the famous story of him taking the crown away from the Pope and putting it on his own head, actually, I don't think that's true. Um, but you get the picture. He, there was a series of meetings um, right at the zenith of Napoleon's power. He was so powerful in 1804 that he was planning an invasion of Great Britain. And he had amassed, he had the first um, huge outdoor party, you could say, for the first legionnaires, which Fabri Pallabrat would later belong to, the, the Legion of Honor. And the legionnaires and his generals were all invited to this huge festival in the north. And instead of you know the usual sort of Liberace style, Throne. He insisted, he Napoleon insisted on an ancient throne of the Merovingian, the Merovingian kings. 
and you might know, those of you who are interested in symbols, that Napoleon adopted the bee as his symbol, which was the symbol of the male bee, the Merovingians. Who are, of course, as we all know, sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so whether you would like to believe that or not, uh, the bee and the Merovingian, um, you could say, theatrics that Bonaparte used at that party were certainly saying something. They were making a very clear comment uh, and a warning to the British and to others, to the Austrians, that, you know, the empire is here and we are something to be reckoned with. And it's a new, it's a kind of, it's not really a, a, a reformation or a revolution or a counter-revolution, it's this really bizarre combination of uh, civil and political rights up to a point, and then order, which actually worked really well had it not been for the ridiculous wars that he waged in Russia, but beyond that, um, so 1804, so the doctor is hanging around and he's probably thinking, hmm, I have a great idea for a new state religion in France and the rest of the empire. One which is Catholic still, but in which you wouldn't have to worry about that little man in Rome. And I don't have any proof that, that, that any of this happened, but I do know that um, there is a kind of abor a, a sort of aborted attempt, at least on Frederick Holofrance's part, to make it much more uh, the state religion, or at least an important religion in France. And it was, it, the, the hopes were actually dashed at this time because there was a lot of intrigue going on with Napoleon's uh, annexation of the Papal States. And his brother uh, became king, and which basically tore off one of the crowns off the triple tiara, right? Because <laughs> that was the, the Papal States where he was the king of the Papal States, the Pope. Um, so, you know, there, there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of dirty laundry and knowledge on both sides of the table. The Pope actually went to Paris on an unofficial visit, which was unheard of at that time. Um, and they met the Emperor and the Pope, and they made deals. And one of the deals was the coronation, and I think that another of the deals was that the Catholic Church would, would maintain or would be given its privileges, made compensation for the destruction of the 90s, the 1790s. Um, every time I say 90s, someone asks me, 18 or 90, or which 90s? <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that was, I think that at that critical moment in history, he really wanted to do it, but he didn't. I don't think, um, Napoleon wasn't interested in religion. He was kind of a universalist. Uh, you know, he, he actually, he, has, he wrote that he thought that, the, the, that, the, that Islam, for him, made a lot more sense, which I thought was really interesting. Um, being a Corsican, you know, the Corsicans don't have a great history with uh, with Muslims because there were invasions, barbary pirates, and pirates, and etc. But he he liked the simplicity, I guess. And <clears throat> so anyway, it just it just didn't happen. And I think that it was something that was going on in the background, especially for, in the mind of Dr. Faber Palabrat, at least. <clears throat> So, any questions on the Napoleonic era? A comment, I guess. Um, you, you noted that you thought Dr. Piper Valaprat was 
was quite at home in the court setting, despite being a middle-class boy. Um, what, one of the things that people who aren't of noble birth probably find a little harder at court is, um, is intrigue. That's, when one's born to it, I guess it's, um, you know, when you watch enough of the Borgias, right? <laughs> then you get a sense that, you know, really thriving in that environment and, and seeing your plans through to fruition, like making the Johannite Church the state church of the Napolitanic Empire, is tough if you're not in that subtle ebb and flow of court interplay and intrigue, I guess. I yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, he wouldn't have had the. Um authority. I mean, even his friends, the bishops, the other the, the Catholic bishops, uh, they just didn't have the pull. Uh, it didn't mean anything mm. anymore. I mean, the other side of it is, of course, that the the Napoleonic court was not, was, did have, it did feature aristocrats, but it wasn't entirely aristocratic. Um, connected to that time period, and I, I, you know, I'm certainly going to know Folks here, it would be you. There was there was a degree of uh, official recognition from Napoleon in terms of Pelagrat's Templar work, was there not? Yes. Yeah. Yes, there was. Yeah. And I think that the as a um, as a Masonic ideal yeah. kept in that way, I think that Napoleon was perfectly happy. I think he was actually interested, um, but in a very Masonic kind of way. Yeah. In other words, not a not a church kind of way. Yeah, I think there's still, I think, I think uh, an official, I guess, I guess it goes to the thing of, you know, you, what what medals you're allowed to wear when you're at a court function, right? Kind of what are officially recognized by the state. There's, there's, there's certain orders, for example, say Catholic orders that you wouldn't wear if you got to have dinner with Her Majesty in, in England, right? You simply, you know, you wouldn't do those kind of things. So, so uh, Napoleon, I guess Napoleon, from all I know, allowed you know, allowed or, or, or made that permissible or gave them kind of uh, official sanction. I imagine, yeah, I mean, from all appearances, it's a lot more Masonic than Ecclesial. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously he was given, I mean, he was given a great deal of uh, accolades and you know, yeah. it, it was a prestigious thing to be well, just to have the Legion of Honor, but yeah. um, you know, to have that position at court, obviously, yeah, that's. It's just I think that he wanted to take it a lot further. Yeah. I think it's a good sign, though, that I mean, you know, given the the things that Napoleon did have going on, like the like the Legion or whatever, that it wasn't that Palakat's work on the Templar front wasn't wasn't seen as detracting or lessening. You know what I mean? That, you know, it was it was good enough to be one one among many. I'm reminded of one anecdote about Napoleon from this time that um, he made good his visit to Rome to also examine the archives that we all drool over. And he left after about three weeks of at least some of the time reading things like that, really well, making a very sour comment that um, quote unquote history is a fable, which I, I mean, I've always taken that in the context of. Fabry Palapod, stuff like that. But I, I think Napoleon had a certain appreciation of the political power of, of myth, or what we today call propaganda, but I don't think he liked it much past a certain point. No. Yeah. I agree. I think that he was, you know, it's funny because in the English-speaking world, Napoleon is kind of a bad guy. And it's really funny because, of, of course, because, um, you know, in the English-speaking world, he was the enemy for a while. but. Um, well, except for the Americans, of course, we were on his side. <laughs> and that's why the British burned the White House. <laughs> but, um, you know, the War of 1812, we call it here. Um, we were actually on his side. But anyway, um, by all accounts, a very just and um, open-minded person, you know. And he was very interested, I think, um, cynical but not in a completely negative way, but just saying, you know, this is, this is, uh, a lot of this stuff is just not real, 
and you know he must especially coming from that point of view in those days when people believed things you know they swallowed things whole um, and it was just expected to do that uh, that uh, here's a person who actually does kind of think outside the box and didn't have any problem with mixing metaphors or systems or <laughs> you know um, and you know the uh, but it is interesting to see that the the constitutional bishops have so little influence it's just like the, the bishops at that time um, were they just really didn't have much pull and uh, people like Gregoire and Moviel uh, were they're important, but just in, in the church sense. You know, they, they really don't have very much pull. But they, they did have some social, there was some resonance. So you'll see things like um, Gregoire, you know, he's, he's near and dear to me because I've spent a lot of time in France, as you know, and, and particularly in, in Alsace. And, you know, he, he's kind of a hero among Jewish people. Uh, which there is a very large um, Jewish community in Alsace, um, even after the war. And he was responsible for um, championing their civil rights. Um, you know, because Alsace was originally part of a free state within the, um, the German Empire. And uh, they were given certain rights and privileges as um, and freedoms under that system. But when Alsace uh, became part of France, those rights and privileges were put up in question. And ironically, ironically, their luck with both countries has been kind of difficult. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, but it's very interesting to see um, that he's remembered for that. So, uh, you know, for me, it, it sort of, it gives me a corroboration that here's a pretty just thinking person, you know, who, who actually did have some good things to say and do that were dangerous and not usual. So he, he wasn't, Gregoire wasn't, uh, wasn't the kind of bishop who would just sit on his velvet cushion and, you know, pontificate uh, about how, you know, the, about the good old days when bishops, you know, had people stand on <laughs> um, and egg salad all the time. <laughs> uh, they were, you know, they, he was someone who was actually out doing things. And so, so someone, a Joanite, comes and says, so what do you think of this? You know, he's, he actually takes it and looks at it, spends time examining it and, um, and writing about it. So it says a lot. This needs an infographic on Facebook. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that 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 kind of discipline and and thoughtful um, repartee, you know, is important. It's very important, and I it's, it's really beautiful for me to see as a not only as a Joanite priest but just as a Joanite in general, the um, the tradition continuing. And it's the most difficult thing for me as a priest to describe to new people in our parish um, or people that I talk to online um, about how can you have these Catholic rubrics and you know, you're a sacramentalist on this side, uh, which, is, which tends to be very conservative in order to serve people who, who are or who feel that those things are very important and to protect that the sanctity of, of their belief. And on the other side, to have the freedom of um, thought and inquiry that allows us to um, fan up the flames of the spirit uh, for our own journeys. Um, and most people just don't understand that. It's very difficult for them to understand. So, well, what, what do you really believe? What, you know, what, what is the Levitical, is this, is this the real truth about what Joanites are about? Is there something hidden here? Um, you know, is there some secret rite where you, do you have the head of John the Baptist? Are you, you know, do you kiss each other in places that you shouldn't? What, I mean, 
Um, it's like, you, you just don't want to. You don't want to believe that people don't want to believe that you that that sacramentalism is a thing that is sort of like a church without any walls, and inside that people can freely float around, but the roof still stays on, right? It's astonishingly difficult. Yeah. By the way, I'm running a cross-trampling workshop on Monday if anybody wants to come along. <laughs> Do some spitting and stuff, it'd be fun. So, it, but you know, we didn't know, I don't think, at least I'll speak for myself, um, I first became interested in Leviticon a long time ago, before I was even a Jonite. And it's what brought me here, actually. So, because I read the, I call them the parlatrix people, <laughs> who write neat books about the Templars and other stuff. And um, it's the first time I ever saw Joanites mentioned as a, as a, as a religious group. Um, and that's why I started off with that quote by Boris Balkan, mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, because that's exactly what it, what it is. Most of the stuff is just a rehash of junk that, and bad scholarship. Um, great books, great books to pass the time, but um, you know, a religion, a serious religion, uh, such as this, is something that I think um, is not only timely, but it's kind of a reflection of all those people, whether they were Seneca sisters trying to help the poor in the streets after the revolution, or Fabri Palaprad trying to instill sacramental virtues as well as free inquiry, and that they're not diametrically opposed, just like science and religion are not diametrically opposed. It creates that temple, that, that sacred space, where everything is, as my father says, where everything is everything. <laughs> the other, um, the other, the other, the first headquarters of the church that I mentioned to you uh, was called South, well, one of them, <clears throat> there were several. There were actually several buildings around Paris that they that they used. But one of them, one of them is still in place. I'm trying to remember who. Oh, Chatel. Chatel was. Um, there's a place called Salle Le Brun uh, that uh, where. Fabre Palaprat consecrated um, Francois Ferdinand Chantel as primate of Gaul on the 4th of May, 1831. So, magic day. Maybe, so, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, let's see here. According to Léonce Eugène Joseph, Fanboy de Cesar, you probably know who he is. He's better known as Tau Sinesius. Uh, this consecration took place at Salvatron, uh, Rue Clary, blah, 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 the second arrondissement of Paris. Um, for those of you who don't know, Chatel went on to found the Église Catholique de France, also known as uh, the Gallican Church, which still exists. Uh, the consecration venue built in the late 17th century was originally um, owned by Jean-Baptiste Pierre de Brun, uh, B-R-U-N, Brun, uh, a noted art collector, and his wife, the painter Madame Vigier de Brun. She was uh, actually, this is an interesting historical footnote, uh, the person who painted the famous portrait of Marie Antoinette. Um, it was outfitted with luxurious halls to showcase the couple's collection that had since become a hall for exhibitions and auctions of art and antiques. So uh, that's, that's, so there are various sort of, sort of like, almost like salons that were used um, for, for big ceremonies. Um, and it's possible, it's very much like we operate today. It depends on the parish and what we do, but we have buildings that we, we return to regularly, but, um, but they did move around, even then. The, the noble uh, greasy diner. 
Yeah. <laughs> At least I know. Have giant Tupperware box, we'll have church. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, if, if there aren't any other questions, are there any other questions or comments? Yes? Just a tiny note. Well, one thing why I was interested in the boom team day, given it strikes me that's fairly near the end, but still, there's a possible tie-in there with the iconoclast controversy, you know, which I don't even know that you'd want to associate yourself with that too much. But, I mean, there's a certain error in the Orthodox Church at that time that things could be simpler, could be more primitive, more primordial, and it strikes me as not completely inconceivable that someone with more positive projects than smashing icons might, you know, want to clear the dust off something like this. It's just a vague possibility. It might be worth absolutely nothing. Well, they were looking for ways to, you know, simplify out of a kind of reactionary thing, right, where, um, you know, where they're, they're getting their ass handed to them and they want to kind of figure out an explanation. Why? Well, clearly it's because we've done the wrong thing religiously, so, you know, icons go under the foot, but yeah, maybe they... Right. Yeah. But there's an air of heterodoxy as much as you can have something like that there. Well, that, that actually, yeah, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a thread that runs through the Manichaean, the fact that they had, you know, I mean, your, you know, your, your average man on the, on the street or shopkeeper or whatever, I mean, theological debate, you know, was talked about frequently and often among the populace in the same way that, you know, people talk about politics today. Because it was that intertwined, it was that common. It wasn't, you know, something that, you know, a couple of, you know, geeks do in the coffee shop. I mean, it was a bit, because of the link between church and state and all that, I mean, it was very, you know, people are, you know, people are talking about the councils, the nature of Christ, and all sorts of stuff, you know, right on the street. Interesting place to hang out. <laughs> well, plus I don't think there was, and still you have that kind of um, uh, classical, between the religious and the secular. Yeah. People just didn't, you know, which I think even until recently has been kind of there. I mean, uh, if you didn't, if you weren't a believer in the right way, then how can we trust you? That's mm -hmm. part of our, you're going to bring, you know, bad things to us. You're going to bring the plague and our crops aren't going to grow. And yeah. We're going to have to take you out and, you know, with a wicker man. <laughs> Do a little wicker action. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Good times, noodle salad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that just, you see that kind of, you, you're, you're trying to, I think that um, having read some other things that Robert Falkrat wrote, um, having nothing to do with religion, uh, per se, uh, you see that um, he, um, for example, even though he has this, you know, this um, courtly life and everything, and he's also very much uh, a leader of the, the Masonic world and of his, you know, the Order of the Temple anyway, and, and in the church, he also um, is the the sort of I don't know what the in in in, in, in Anglo-Saxon terms it's difficult to describe, but in the Latin world, uh, they have sort of like a regional or like a neighborhood health authority. Um, sometimes it was run by the church, sometimes it was run by the state, but um, it, it was a, a public health authority, salus publica, you know, it comes from the Roman section. And that, that was uh, an authority which would be based on by, by a district, or arrondissement, it's called in Paris, so they're like cities really. Um, and I believe it was the fourth arrondissement. He, he was the director of the um, medical service, or the national health service, you could call it. Um, so, kind of like me, I, my, I work as a director for the, you know, for a social services agency. Um, he, you know, that he, he was very much the same kind of, kind of guy. So he was, he was, well, and he didn't have a trolley either, so he couldn't get to work. <laughs> um, and you need more fantastic pants and, and chops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have the yeah, I don't have the you don't style. Have the house for it. <laughs> 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 
but the, uh, the 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 church that he envisions, just so you know, um, I'm sure you won't mind if I leak a couple of little tidbits to stir up interest. And in, in, there are other parts, obviously, that that will be. Some of it is is it's just sort of like a manual. Uh, it's pretty boring. Um, and probably not of interest uh, to the public. But um, there are parts that <laughs> very meticulously give you a list of every single level of the priesthood, priesthood and um, you know, deacons, priests, bishops, and then other titles of authority. Um, and each one had different color cassocks, and they had different color gloves, and they had certain color of gems that they wore. Uh, so there's all this kind of symbolism uh, in the gem. There's also, um, I'm not sure if they call it that, but I guess, you know, the practice for the rest of the members, not just the clergy, but um, degrees. Degrees, yeah. Yeah. So it's very Masonic in that way. I'd really just like to say thanks. I mean, if, if most of one's, most of my understanding of Dr. Faber-Bellaprat's come from reading um, eighth generation of Jumbo, I suppose, really, in reflection. Well, the Sonic sources of English, and, and they were working off of hearsay. Yeah. 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 The, the, yeah. The, um, if, you, if you're interested in Mumbo Jumbo, the original Mumbo Jumbo. Um, there are no, actually, and the, the, that's the ironic thing is that the, the cranky old Catholic Marquise is actually pretty accurate. She doesn't. I mean, there's this long portion before um, that I did not read to you um, about her her understanding of of all this. But I mean, keep in mind that the Mar the, the Marquise that we're talking about, Cranky, she was she, in her memoirs, other than Dr. Fabri Palaprat, there are a lot of other very interesting people. The Count of St. Germain, of course. <laughs> Count Mostro, of course. Um, she was actually the cousin of Louis, the Cardinal de Rouen, who was the Prince Bishop of uh, Strasbourg. Uh, so, and he was, I don't know, if, for those of you who are interested in this kind of stuff, um, he was the, the host of Cagliostro. Um, and the prince, the prince bishops of, of, um, of Strasbourg are important to the, to the 2010 version of, um, of this because I was living right across the street from where Cagliostro used to live when he was there. So right across in the right near the cathedral chapter house of and the, the palace of the Roa uh, bishops. Because in, in, in some places in the empire, in the German empire, remember that Strasbourg was German before, um, the prince bishops uh, would be electors of the emperor. Mm -hmm. And they had pretty much free reign. They, it was a, a free state, basically. They, they had their own laws and traditions. So he was not only the highest ranking civilian um, or administrator of it uh, as the Prince Bishop, he's of course also the head cleric and usually a cardinal. So they're very powerful people. And it's, it's really interesting to see the, um, anyway, they're cousins. That is the cousin of this lady. And so she relates uh, that she saw some rather detailed explanation of documents um, that were crossed between Cagliostro and the Prince Archbishop, her cousin. And she says that, um, I don't know, are you interested in this? Sure, yes. Um, this is a quote. The the Grand Master of the Templars, this is how it starts, the passage about about Um The Grand Master of the Templars, Jacques de bourg Molay, who was tortured to death in 1314 and whose family survives to this day in Minerve, had created during the captivity in the Bastille four mother lodges, the East Naples, for the West Edinburgh, 
for the north, Stockholm, and Paris for the middle. The day following the execution of the Templars in Paris, Sir Nicholas of Aumont, that's A-U-M-O-N-T, and seven other Templars disguised as stonemasons came to collect the ashes of their brothers. Fifteen days later, Sir Erskan de Florio, who had um, denounced the order, was murdered in the Place d'Avignon. Pope Clement V had done him a magnificent funeral and declared him, quote, a venerable servant of God, unquote. But it appears certain that the Templars removed his body and deposited it in the tomb of Jacques de, Mol of Jacques de Molay. Then the four lodges founded by him began to organize themselves, and all the Templars took an oath to destroy the power of the Pope, to exterminate the Capetian dynasty, and all monarchs, to excite the peoples to revolt, and to establish a universal republic. Madame de Clayky um, basically, you know, she's obviously not a huge fan of the French Revolution, and this was written after. Uh, it's likely that this was written after, or she, she might have um, kept no, uh, personally I think there's some controversy about, about her memoirs because they're so big. It's impossible for one woman probably to have written the whole thing by herself. Uh, but she probably wrote in a diary and then um, later, after, maybe even after she died, um, her nephew or her son um, or both transcribed everything into the books and had it published to make money. Because <laughs> it was juicy stuff. I mean, you know, it would have been um, boudoir reading. So, so um, yeah. So that that's the that's her context. So it's very you know, lengthy. Mm -hmm. so, and the and the connection to the Templars is unquestioned. It's the, that's the funny thing is that she's not particularly favorable to us, and yet the connection to the Templars is there, and she and she states it as fact. Now she could be doing the same thing that a lot of other people do, which is repeating errors that she, she heard from someone else. But I find her of a lot of other, um, I'm a big primary resource kind of guy. And so you want to find someone who's actually living and an adult mm -hmm. and literate. So that's three. And um, who has the means to know. She's definitely got that. And who actually has some firsthand which she, she also has. A lot of it is hearsay, but some of it is um, her own reflections. And you can tell that, um, that she has you know, very detailed information about these things. So if she sees a letter that her cousin exchanged, you know, maybe she goes to Strasbourg and she, she visits her cousin and they're talking about politics or whatever, which in the salon that he would have kept and it was a very liberal uh, place. The, the palace of the Rohan in Strasbourg um, is now the museum. And it, it's a perfect piece of neoclassical architecture, not a Christian symbol in sight. <laughs> in fact, over every arched window is another classical god. Um, and it's a beautiful building. Um, and it's, uh, it's very prominent in the city. And it's right next to the cathedral. So she would have been in the center of things visiting her cousin and um, would have seen and, and been you know, close enough to him for her to have actually seen those letters, which is where she gets this, uh, this idea from. Now, did she, was Cagliostro just feeding a, a line of garbage to confuse people? Quite probable, but you never know. It could be, you know, it could be uh, Frank. I mean, he he couldn't have been too misleading to his patron because he was being kept by him. Um, literally, the house across the street from where I used to stay and from my office, uh, the whole house was Cagliostro's, and it was just sort of like, oh, the Prince Bishop says you can have this house, and with the caveat that if you piss off the Prince Bishop. <laughs> Not only will you die, but you won't have a place to stay. <laughs> Things like her badly. Yeah, very badly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, earlier you said that you, you had some theories about what happened to the original vellum. Uh, can you share those here? Um, we know that by the 1850s, isn't it, sir, when there's the big Ruhaha in the church? There's a couple. By, by 1870, the order. I'm not, I can't remember if it was during that was the, What was the Englishman's name, I guess? Or at which point, sorry? That Fabric Public Front um, wanted to be the last leader. You know, I can't, I can't remember. I do know that uh, the Admiral. Yes, Smith, the Admiral. Yeah, yes. he, ended up becoming, he ended up becoming the regent. And that there, 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 there was a split or there was a dispute over the prominence or role that the Jonah Church would play in regards to the order because there, there was a group that was very uh, devoted to Right, right. And uh, so you have, uh, interesting enough, because Bishop Tim and I were just talking about this not, not too long ago, but um, <coughs> I'm just trying to think of the, you know, the demise of the church at that time versus the demise of the order. I mean, Pavel Pratt passes on in, in 1838, uh, if I remember, right. and I think uh, I think things were already, you know, things were already heated at that point in his time, and then that kind of goes yeah. shortly after, but the, but the order continued. Yeah, um, so long story short, my speculation um, is that the, because the, the order was always the strongest one, obviously, and for obvious reasons. You know, I mean, it's the it's older. Um, it might be older than that, really. Um, and so, when push comes to shove and things happen, uh, they tend to have. First of all, there was no distinction because you could you, you were keeping all the stuff together, probably. Um, so I think that if that's the case, and it was the order that the order was the last thing to go dormant, um, that it would have been turned over, it might have been turned over to the Grand Orient de France. I personally believe that a lot of this is in the archives of the Grand Orient. But um, try getting it. <laughs> <laughs> to say, there's, I mean, there's a lot to suggest that you know elements of the church, obviously, you know, just just like the legend suggests from earlier times, you know, would be carried within the the orders. I mean, if you read the uh, you know if you if you read the manual for for the order, which is available in English, the uh, Rise of Brown, I mean, there's there's a lot of crocs in but I have another theory, yeah. which is that there's this little bookshop in Toledo, and there are these two brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you get up on a ladder and look on top, single leaf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't. So, but I. That's my best guess. Uh, I hope, I hope that's where it is. I hope it's not been destroyed or, or left or that it you know, was used as somebody's coffee table. Someone's mother used it as kindling to light a fire at the kitchen stove. Uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. And I personally think that it would be worth uh, sending in, you know, spending some time um, to try to as, as, as they say in French, the direct translation is to lubricate the social relations. Yeah, because it's not, it's not impossible to get to that archive, right? I'm sorry? It's not impossible to get to that archive. Not at all. It's not impossible. Not at all. It's just that I was in Strasbourg, not in Paris. And at the time I was translating, not really interested in seeing the original. Um, but yes, I mean, it's just like any other Grand Lodge. I'm sure that they, you know, you can get in. I, they might have restricted stacks. Being in France, 
usually everything is restricted. <laughs> they just automatically assume that you're nefarious and that you will, you know, vomit on their books. So, <laughs> you know, you need to get permission and you need to fill out a form. But, uh, I mean, even the secret archive, the secret archive, the apostolic archives at the Vatican, you know, you can, you just fill out a form. Because for those of us who went to school in Europe, you're used to that. There is no like there are no you know non-restricted stacks in a lot of libraries. You have to just fill out a form and give it to this woman who looks like she's going to eat your soul, <laughs> and then she'll go get it for you. That's why I married a, an archivist. We're <laughs> <laughs> <Or> much friendlier. <laughs> yeah, Brandeis is a lot friendlier. Yeah. I don't know, Maggie. If you put that hair up in a bun. Yeah. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, the trick is, is not is just to look like you're going to eat somebody's soul. Right. That's all yeah. that's necessary. Well, in the U.S., there's all this stuff about you know encouraging people to come in. No, so, we you know. we <laughs> I don't hold with it. Not the lower the quality discourse like I did yesterday with this gracious <laughs> lecture. But I was wondering if you could quickly, I'm sure that's a whole other lecture, if you could quickly run through the major pumpkin about the Leviticon. Like, what, what are the main points that are wrong that if I Googled it would pop up? Where's the mumbo jumbo? Where, right. yeah, what, what's the major mumbo jumbo that's completely wrong? Well, it's not completely wrong, like any good lie. <laughs> um, it's based in truth. The, for example, Jesus was, you know, went to Egypt and was initiated, as we say, but it goes much further. It says, you know, an initiated Osiris, and it's very specific that, that he's basically bringing this. And what I'm saying is, I translated the document, the, the gospel that supposedly contain this information. And it does say, there is a question that Father Anthony uh, is gonna talk about later. But basically, you know, they ask in, in the Gospel of John, in, in all the versions of the Gospel of John, but in, in this version, they're very specific. In the, in the regular gospel, it asks him, are you not the son of um, Joseph and Mary? Aren't you one of us? And in here it says, and what is this learning from the Greeks or from the Egyptians? Now, I was just talking about this with Maggie this morning, as we do. Um, you know, it is quite possible. And you don't have to be. Uh, you know, a sort of moon-gazing weirdo to look in the Bible and see that Jesus and Mary, it's called the flight into Egypt, right? And then there's nothing. So, big deal. Yeah, maybe he did. And it's obvious that he is able to communicate in an intelligent way. Well, he's able to piss off a lot of people, right? <laughs> a very, very important people. So if you, were, if you were just some troll from the dung heap and only spoke Aramaic, I doubt very much that they would even give you the time of day. You know, really. Um, so is it true? Yeah, but it's even true in the canonical Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. you, you can read in that, you can definitely read in that passage that he's bringing some, as, as, as uh, Monsignor Stratford said, some alien knowledge, something that's not part of the usual, um, you know, Jewish religion that's prevalent. Um, so that's one of the things. It, you know, it, it basically states that um, he is a priest of Osiris, and you know. I think where I think where that workup might be coming from is you have the implication that there's. There's other learning or other education coming in the one line, uh, you know, out of the primitive gospels. But then you have the catechism in the rest of the book yeah. that's built up around it, where they turn around and they kind of 
stretch that out a bit and, and hang it kind of thing. And so, you know, you're having people kind of look at the commentary, you know, for the community around Palaprat and kind of read that into what's, you know, or to, to kind of, you know, push that back in there. But that kind of specificity with the general putting more coffee uh, is not actually enough. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and you, see, you you heard it in the first quote that I read, um, when Fabri Palafrat says, basically saying, um, the sanctity of our religion is not based on this document. Hmm. He says it explicitly. And it's not just him, actually, that he signed it, and it was also signed by, by Movia, the, the bishop, the other bishop. So. They're making a statement that's a really important statement, and I can't emphasize that enough. Um, you know, this is like, please stop distributing the same infograph over and over and <laughs> over again. That's wrong. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I liken it to a game of telephone. I know it's called different things in different countries, but you know, where one person whispers in the ear, the next person who whispers in the ear, the next person, and these the mumbo-jumbo comes out the other end. Um, the bit about that all, all of the miracles are excised in Leviticon, right? That's what I do here. And they're not. They're, they're not, yeah. Um, but things are excised, and so... They're reduced. Um, yeah. I think well, that we'll we should transition it. into the... Yes. They take a break and transition. There's a, there's a quick, interesting point talking about the telephone game and things that get repeated. Um, this is one of those kind of anniversary stories that kind of connects that to a fashion. As everybody knows, in formation, you start off with a review of the sacraments, kind of bring you up to speed. To bring you up to speed if you're not familiar with them or to kind of refresh your brain if you come out of a sacramental thing. And so, you know, typically, you know, not a lot of seminarians will turn around and put their papers online once they're done, you know, good or bad. And, you know, especially if there's some mistakes, but there, there's a, a, a well-known priest in our church who who uh, you know essentially uh, made a blog post about his his sacramental views way back in the beginning as he was going through uh, formation and there's a significant error in there which has been copied by two thirds of people who have gone through our program because they've read that post and then copied that answer you know in almost the exact same way and so i know where the source of the error is coming. i know where the source of the error is is coming from and they repeat they, they they repeat it throughout the thing because in in that opening thing uh, uh, uh father donald is not one of the people by the way i should mention <laughs> yeah. but uh uh publish a, publish a list of those people who did yeah he, he, it, it, it is literally one of the most uh, oft-found mistakes in that course. So, that so what you're saying is, if you're going to put your answer to the if you're going to put your uh, your, your summary paper online, at least have the decency to put an Easter egg in it, so so that we can copy his copy. Right. <laughs> I I I actually you know enjoy putting out of my head there when we got that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you know that goes back to Father Bonani. We, we implant things that are wrong just so we know who's talking about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.